Delighted that we're together to worship the Lord. Delighted that we have visiting friends uh, with us. That's uh, always encouraging. And we have two uh, special ones. Well, how, yeah, everybody's special, but we have two that I want to highlight. Uh, David Montgomery, some of you will know him as Monte, who now runs CUI, is that? Christian Union uh, Ireland. Uh, that's a new name for you were IFES and you were UCUF and you were dear knows what uh, going way back. But whatever you're called, we're delighted you're here. Uh, very valuable. M maybe he'll tell you about all the links that there are with this church and its staff uh, to uh, the Christian Union work. So David, you are very uh, welcome. I'm being more formal, saying I used to be your boss. You didn't do what I told you then, so I don't know what you're doing now. A anyway, and he's got Peter with him, Peter Kenny, who I think runs the show in Dublin, but he will tell us precisely what uh, goes on. So we welcome them, we look forward to what they have to tell us, and David will, of course, uh, bring the word to us uh, later in the service. You want to take your seats, and Kenzie Bars is going to come and um, read for us this evening, and then following that, Monty's going to come and interview Peter. Luke chapter... 14 verse 25 to 35 the cost of being a disciple large crowds were traveling with jesus and turning to him he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children his brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see he, if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow begun to build and cannot finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is, it is fit neither for the soil nor for manure heap, and it is thrown out. He who hears to listen, he who has ears to listen, let him hear. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Bill. Uh, it's lovely to be here in Bloomfield. Just a little bit of context. Uh, Christian Union Ireland uh, works in over 30 campuses, virtually all degree awarding institutions in the island of Ireland, North and South. Uh, we have about 10 staff in every province of the island, and we have just all been together for our pre-term staff conference and preparation 
for the new year, which is why uh, we're all up in this area. Um, so yes, we had Trevor Lee coming on Friday morning to do a little bit of teamwork with us, but it's okay, the, the weekend improved drastically after that. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we've been, it's been great. So Peter uh, Kenny here, who's our Dublin team leader, is uh, uh, in the area, and we thought it would be uh, good to hear a little of what uh, his story is and the work, how the work is constituted down in Dublin. So, uh, Peter, maybe just tell us a little bit about your own story, who you are, and uh, basically uh, how God has brought you to this point in your life. Great, thanks, Monty. Um, and yeah, it's lovely to be here. Uh, so, my name is Peter Kenny. So I'm living currently in Dublin, uh, married to my beautiful wife Maeve with a little boy Fionn, uh, who's two years old and with another baby on the way. But I didn't grow up in Dublin, so I grew up about 100 miles southeast of Dublin in a small town called Feathered, uh, which my wife Maeve tells me regularly is a village, but I call it a town. Um, so when I was growing up, I would have known uh, a lot about God through my parents, and we used to attend church every week. So they would have taught me about God, they would have read the Bible to me and so on. When I was growing up though, I suppose my understanding of God was largely of a God who was extremely moral and extremely holy, which he is, um, but I was very conscious of my own sin and just had a real inability to know how I could approach uh, this holy God and never really understood how that could be. Um, and so during my teenage years, I, I went to uh, play the piano in a local church uh, where they were preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of Jesus. And it was during my time there that things started to click for me. It started to make sense for me, this good news about Jesus, that he has uh, died in order to save somebody like me, a sinner. And so the crushing uh, weight of my sin um, suddenly became uh, something very, uh, tan or something, something that, uh, was an intrinsic part of why Jesus came to die and uh, came to save me. So um, I suppose I progressed through my teenage years into college years um, in that way and started to learn more and more um, about who God is and who Jesus is through that local church. Okay, Peter. Uh, as Bill said, we're Christian Unions Ireland. If you're of Peter's generation as a student, we would have been IFES Ireland, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. We're still a part of that global network. If you're my generation of students, we were UCCF, which uh, it still is in Great Britain, where I know Chris Simons has been working. Uh, and if you're of Bill's generation, it was InterVarsity Fellowship, but I don't expect too many of you to be of that. Uh, but name changes happen. Uh, Bill was even telling me that he was the first president of the Queen's CU just after it changed its name from the BU. Different names, same vision, same mission. One of the reasons we changed was I got fed up having to explain what IFES stood for, and on one occasion I was introduced as the director of ISIS Ireland. And I thought, right, <laughs> definitely time for a, a change. But at CUI, Christian Unions, in the campuses, Peter, what role did Christian Unions in your campus play in your own spiritual development? Um, so for me, as a teenager, I suppose I was starting to learn something about, more about the gospel, about who Jesus was. When I went off to college, there was a huge amount of freedom. So I was 50 miles away from my parents, 50 miles away from all the friends that I had made as I was growing up. Um, and so in many ways, it was an opportunity to uh, create nearly a new identity for myself. So people didn't have any expectations of who I was, what way I would live, what worldview I would have, what perspective I would have. 
And so in my early college days, um, I was essentially going my own way. And so even though I knew about Jesus, I certainly wasn't following him in my life. And so my minister um, in my local church encouraged me to get in touch with uh, our Christian Unions Ireland staff worker, who at the time was uh, Damien Burke, who you, you know, of course. Um, and I'm not saying this just because I'm in this church, but Damien was really one of two uh, individuals who God put in my life at that time who was incredibly formative in mentoring me and meeting with me every week uh, to look at God's word together, to thrash out some of the questions that I had about how to be a Christian on campus. And so if you looked at my life before meeting Damien and in those early meetings compared to towards the end of college, there was a massive difference that was largely because of Damien's influence in terms of helping me to understand what it was to walk with God in my college years. So much so that I went on to do an internship under Damien's supervision, and again, he continued to uh, have spiritual input and influence into my life uh, to the point where when he decided to move on um, away from IFES Ireland as it was then, then uh, I then um, wanted to, I suppose, continue in the work I was doing. So I took over from Damien in Munster as a staff worker on the campuses down there in a couple of universities and a few of the third level schools as well. Okay, so that was covering the, largely the, Munst, the Munster area. Uh, and you did that for how many years? So that was for five years. Okay. Yeah, so I can't uh, remember the exact years. And after, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and after that, what did you do? Because uh, you, did, you went the far away and did something a bit different. Yeah, so five years down in Munster um, and then went much further afield, so went over to the States to study for a while. So while I was on campus in Munster, um, working with the Christian unions, uh, IFES Ireland very kindly allowed me study time. So I started a part-time master's in theological studies then. And then God opened up the opportunity to go to the States to continue that master's and to complete that master's. So over there for a couple of years down in Mississippi, which was a fantastic experience, a great uh, culture and a great learning experience for my wife and I, um, and then back to Ireland a couple of years after that, yeah. Okay, so you were over at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, uh, and did you, did you think at that stage that you would be coming back into student ministry? Uh, not necessarily, no. So um, our vision was certainly to come back to Ireland. So. It was really our desire to want to be of service to the church in Ireland. Um, and so during the two years we were there, I mean, the question was always on, the kinda, on our radar, what would be next and what would happen next? Um, and for me, when I left uh, Christian Unions Ireland back in uh, the previous years, um, it wasn't that I had burned bridges or that I felt bitterly about it at all. It was a very positive leaving and positive moving on. Um, but certainly then, when I was in the States, the, the hope or the intent was to come back to local church ministry. And yet, I think God used that time in a very formative way to remind me of just how crucial campus ministry was or is. Um, so for me, it was to be back as a student uh, in Mississippi and to be back in that kind of environment. And there was a number of different things that happened while I was there that were just a reminder um, of how crucial the ministry is. And so about six months out, I think, from our time of return to Ireland, uh, I started communicating with Monty, and he cast a vision for where we were headed or where Christian Unions Ireland was headed and encouraged me um, to consider thinking uh, about rejoining. And I was very excited to do so over time um, to, to consider how I might be uh, able to play a part in the ministry back here. What's your current role? 
So I work as a team leader in Dublin, uh, or Leinster, I guess, is the, uh, the bigger region. So my role is to work certainly on campus with students. So in University College Dublin, 30,000 students in Dublin City University. Um, so there's maybe up to 20,000 students there. It's also to supervise some of the staff workers that we have there. Um, so we've a new staff come on board this year. My role will be to supervise her and some of our other staff down there. And I guess to set uh, something of the vision for where we're headed and to think through, I guess, longer term. So as you know, student campus, campus life, three or four years, it's very transient. Um, and so my role is to help the staff as we think about how to ensure that things don't get lost uh, as students transition through the years or even out of college at the end. Um, so that's part of what I do. Okay. Just finally, can you give us a, a synopsis for those who mightn't be as acquainted uh, as to what the student scene is like in Dublin, just generally, but also for Christians trying to live out their faith there? Yeah, so I mean, as you can imagine, it's a bit of a melting pot, so there's so much that could be said. Um, it's certainly becoming more and more liberal and more and more assumed that people's worldview will be anything but Christian. Um, certainly lots of shifts in terms of people's morals and ethics that even 10 or 15 years ago would have been unheard of. And so I guess there's a challenge then for Christian students as they enter into that environment um, to know how to think through their own faith in a very uh, rigorous way um, how to stay close to Jesus and their thoughts um, and how they're living, but also to be able to communicate to people how, they, uh, how, what, how, how what we have in the gospel cannot be found anywhere else. So for me, I think even though our universities and our colleges in Dublin have become very liberal in recent times in terms of how they view the world, um, I think at the same time, students are starting to see that there are cracks um, in the worldviews that are being put forward out there and that there's dissatisfaction. So if the emphasis is all on me, all on individualism, people quickly get fed up um, of feeding themselves and doing everything for themselves um, and just looking after number one. And so even though on the one hand it seems more hostile to Christianity, at the same time there are great opportunities because people are starting to realize that some of the things that are put forward as alternatives really aren't uh, very appealing or aren't very satisfying in the long run. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, I know the transience of student ministry can be very frustrating, just a small generation every three years. But the one thing that struck me too is just the legacy that the work goes on. Uh, Peter succeeded Damien, uh, and I suppose he's also the successor, eighth time removed, of Frank Seller, who was a Dublin CU staff worker. And it's just great to see how the work continues from generation to generation. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure you'll get a chance to talk to some people uh, later. And we'll hand back to Karen. So just in our prayers for others, we're going to be praying for the work of CUI and for student ministry in general. I have an interest there. Um, and I'm just going to start as well with some words from Psalm 145. Don't chase me out of the building, but whenever Monty and Peter were speaking, I felt compelled to start flipping through, and I landed on uh, Psalm 145, verse 4, which says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. And then you said those words. And then, and there you go. Okay, let's pray. To Psalm 145. Heavenly Father, I will exalt you, my God the King. 
I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So Lord, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Lord, we thank you for Christian Unions Ireland. We thank you for the work of uh, the big staff team that they've got um, who have dedicated themselves to work among students on the island of Ireland, Lord, and it is a big work. There are a lot of students. There are a lot of people that are very transient, are very pressured, and a very transitional time in life, Lord. So many of us come to faith uh, as young people, as uh, at school or at college. Motivate, motivate us in turn, Lord, to pray for those who work with students and to pray for students at such crucial times in their lives. Lord, we thank you for these, these uh, men and women who have dedicated themselves. We thank you as they prepare for the academic year ahead. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be in those preparations um, as different staff workers uh, get in touch with, with CUs, with campuses, with churches around, in and around campuses, Lord. We just pray for all of those who are pouring themselves, their resources into ministry, Lord, in, in an increasingly difficult civil society. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless Christian Unions Ireland, bless their staff, bless the chaplains at universities, bless the members of churches who will reach out. And we just pray for the students in particular who are seeking to be salt and light on university campuses in the island of Ireland, in the UK, and beyond, Lord. Lord, bless our universities, bless these places of learning, and, and call people in them to you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. As I try to point out what it's like to be a, a, a Christian on campus these days, uh, I often make the point that our students are having to stand up for Jesus in probably one of the most demanding contexts they will ever face in life. Very often, more so than in whatever vocation they go into uh, or whatever other life circumstances they might face. And they have to do that at a time when they are still very unformed in their own faith. Having to do that in their years as young adults, uh, having to come up with answers and having to have the courage of their convictions and really understand not just what they believe, but why they believe. And that's why the role of our staff workers, I think, is so important in being there for them and mentoring them and giving them uh, some of those uh, helpful pointers as they seek to witness for Christ on campus. And it's always so tempting to try to reduce the demands of the gospel, isn't it? For our students, the first to think, well, maybe if we didn't quite demand this, then maybe more would come to our Christian unions. Maybe it wouldn't be so hard for them. Maybe they wouldn't feel so ridiculed and isolated. But that's why I looked again at that passage from Luke chapter 14, about what it means to count the cost in following Jesus. It's a cost that many of our students do face as they make that decision to be a follower. For the last 10 years or more, we have had a house down on Strangford Lock. And you can see from our house, from our living room window, another building half a mile away. It sits between two drumlins, and it's just a shell. Four walls, no roof, bare breeze blocks, big empty spaces for windows and doors, giving it the appearance of a vacant human face. It was obviously begun in better economic times and then abandoned. It now stands for over a decade like a testimony to unfulfilled dreams, 
Its facade is like a grotesque, laughing skull mocking the bad planning or the misfortune of its builder. A little like a story Jesus told about a builder on the tower. A couple of decades ago, I was involved in a youth center in County Dublin run by the PCI, and it had a football pitch adjacent to it. One summer, a college team from the United States came on tour. They were hosted at the center, and they played some local semi-professional teams. One afternoon, the opposition didn't show up. Now, adjacent to the center on the other side was a long hedge separating the center from a local housing estate. At nights, this was populated by a group of drinking lads that we fondly called the Hedge Boys. They'd sit there smoking their stuff, drinking their poison, playing their music late into the night. And for years, we had tried to engage with the Hedge Boys without much success. Now, when this particular football match was abandoned, our director had the idea and went over to the den and asked a few of these Hedge Boys if they could form a team. We thought this will be fun, but they were up for it. Next 30 minutes were quite hilarious. Moody College drove the 200 yards from the center to the football pitch in a branded minibus. They got out in full gear with names and numbers on their back, and they formed a huddle. The hedge boys showed up in twos and threes, one in a trench coat, one wearing a pair of DM boots, another swelling out of a bottle of cider, which he left on the touchline in case he got thirsty during the game. A couple were still smoking. Two were arguing among themselves over who should play goalie, which nobody wanted to do. And eventually, a self-designated captain started counting. Oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Where's Anto? Oh, he's still in bed. Oh, Mikko, go and get Anto and tell him we're starting. And so you had one team of college students, full kit, rehearsing tactics, doing their stretches, and a bunch of scruffy, drinking, smoking, barely awake teenagers without a recognized goalie and with one still in his pajamas. And I'm thinking, what on earth are they doing? A little bit like a story Jesus told about a king and an army. And in chapter 14 of Luke's gospel, there's a big shift. We've just had the parable of the great banquet. And the message of the banquet is the kingdom of God is open to everyone. The party is for all, regardless of social status or resources. It finishes with the master saying, literally, Go into the roads and country lanes, literally the hedges, and bring the hedge boys in. And now as the large crowds hearing this message start to follow, he turns, and he doesn't so much change gear as seem to stick it into reverse. The party is for everybody. It's free, come, but it's not cheap. There is a massive, massive cost to following me. And as he goes on, he gives two stipulations and two examples. Now, the two examples relate to my earlier stories. Uh, the unfinished building lying as a testimony to somebody who didn't count the cost. And the unprepared, under-resourced army who face certain defeat if they go on to the field. But it's the two stipulations that raise the eyebrows. If you look at what he's saying, Jesus is essentially saying two things. If you want to follow me, you've got to A, hate your family, and B, prepare to die, take up your cross. Now, Peter and I have signed off on a right few job advertisements for CUI staff workers in our day. Can you imagine us writing one like this? Christian Unions Ireland, staff worker for Dublin, essential criteria, hate your family, 
and prepare to die. What's Jesus saying? Jesus, the fulfiller of the law that says, honor your father and mother, says, hate your family. Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, who blasts the religious leaders for giving money to the church at the expense of neglecting their parents, now says, hate your family. Jesus, the preacher who tells us to love our enemies, says, hate your family. What's that about? You've probably heard it explained something like this. This is an overstatement. Uh, Linguists would call it a Semitic hyperbole, but then again, I suppose they would. It's a particularly Middle Eastern turn of phrase, we're told, an exaggeration. It used to be explained to me like this. Well, your love for Jesus should be so strong that it makes all other loves look like hate. Or you should love your family less than you love Jesus. I was never really quite satisfied with that. Nothing wrong with it as far as it goes, at least until you start unpacking it a little. But I felt it was unsatisfactory for a couple of reasons. In the Aramaic and the Hebrew, hate is an active word. It involves a conscious choice. It's not just a comparative thing. Love this more than this. You know, I like Paris more than London. I like cats more than dogs. I like Rice Krispie squares more than 15s. Jesus seems to be saying it's not a comparative thing. You've got to make a specific decision about some other things that are very dear to you. Also, those other explanations didn't quite give me enough data on how, how to make my love for Jesus so strong that it would make other loves look like hate. I mean, what does that look like? Can can we not just love both? Well, let me say a couple of things. Firstly, yes, there is an exaggeration here to drive home a point. That's what hyperbole does. And you see it in other parts of the Bible with this word, hate. Proverbs says, those who refuse to discipline hate their children. And the writer is standing back a little bit and saying, listen, the consequences of not disciplining in terms of developing your child's character and putting restraints on their behavior, the consequences of not doing that are so great that you must hate your child not to do it. You must care so little for them that you actually hate them. It makes the point. And then in another Old Testament example, we we, we see the second point, which is about how other people might view your choices and your priorities. In 2 Samuel chapter 26, David's army has been fighting his rebel son Absalom, and Absalom has been killed, and they've won the battle. But David grieves openly like any father would who had lost a son. And Joab, his army commander, is furious that he's crying over the death of his enemy rather than celebrating with his army. And Joab says, you have humiliated us. It is clear now, he says, that you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. David's love for his son was so great that viewed by other people, His closest friends felt that he actually hated them. Think the crux of what Jesus is saying here is not so much about the comparative strength of our love, which love is greater, but more on how our all-consuming love for Christ, our choices to put Him first, how that will be interpreted by some of those, even some of those closest to us. Maybe you've seen this a little. I certainly have in pastoral work. Maybe you've seen it painfully in your own relationships. I think of a couple going abroad on mission. 
choosing to follow Christ's call and travel thousands of miles away with their children, and their parents reacting when they're told about their children and their grandchildren going to the other side of the world. And I've heard it said, you must hate us to do this to us. I think of the leader of a Christian ministry who tells of how he was converted in his 20s. And at that time, he was in a relationship with another young man. And he says that he realized early on from reading the Scriptures without anyone saying anything to him, he realized that this was incompatible with his newfound discipleship. And he says he did the, probably the hardest thing he ever had to do, and he broke off the relationship. And his partner said, why do you suddenly hate me so much? Of course, he didn't. He was full of compassion and pain and genuine love, but he was making a choice, and it was interpreted as hate. Or the child that you want to grow up in the faith as you strive to keep your baptismal vows, but they're at a stage where they don't want to be around church, and as you insist on bringing them, they shout, you must hate me. Nothing could be further from the truth. But your love is interpreted as the very opposite. I think of a friend who on his wedding day wrote to his wife and said, I love you more than any other person on the planet. But the moment my love for you affects my love for Jesus, I will have failed you. How come? But it's because if we love Jesus first, then we truly will love others. But if we start to love anyone else more, then we fail both Jesus and them. Because by making them an idol, which is what we're doing, we give them the status of God in our lives, and that is too big a burden for anyone to bear. I would be horrified if my wife Gwen considered me to be God in her life. Now, the chances are slim. In fact, let's be honest, the chances are slimmer than slim. But if you make your wife or your husband the most important relationship in your life, if you make them your God, how is that fair on them? You make your children your God? How many kids' lives have been ruined because parents have done precisely that? Or a girlfriend? Or a boyfriend? They can't fulfill the role of God in your life. This holiday in Europe, we were standing at a bus stop in a European city, and Gwen, who can spot an Irish accent at 300 yards, uh, spotted one and got talking to this girl from home. Turned out she was a Christian. She just left her old friend, a traveling companion of many years, off at the airport. And we got talking. This girl is quite burdened. She found out that we were Christians, and she said she was quite burdened for her friend that she just left behind because her friend had just confided in her out of the blue that having been a strong Christian, that now suddenly she had intellectual doubts about the Christian faith, doubts that had never bothered her before. And she had said to this girl, maybe Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. And my wife, who tends to be a little bit less subtle in these conversations than I, said immediately to her, oh, has she just recently got herself a non-Christian boyfriend? And this girl was stunned and says, well, well, yes, actually, about a month ago. How did you know? You see, as you give your heart to someone else, especially someone who does not share your values and who doesn't understand them, suddenly the danger is that Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be in your life. The idolatry of a person or a relationship will inevitably reduce your love for Jesus, but an active choice to love and to follow Christ 
may mean that others will misinterpret that as hate or rejection, when in reality, loving Christ above all frees us to love others as we were meant to do. Without the all-embracing love of Christ, how can we love our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our enemies as we should? So Jesus here is simply encouraging his would-be followers to get their priorities right. Of course, he's not encouraging parental neglect or child neglect, divorce or family division. Of course, there are times and there are seasons in life when the most Jesus-like thing you can do is prioritize care for those that have been entrusted to you, young children, ill parents. It's important to do that because we're following Christ. But it's relatively easy to discern when those times are, isn't it? The big test comes when we shut out the call of God in our lives to follow Him or to obey Him, and we, and we use the reaction or the response of our family or partners or friends as an excuse for not following. So to further illustrate that Jesus is not being disproportionately hard on families, you'll notice that in verse 26, he adds in the little phrase, yes, hates even his own life. Yeah, hates even his own life. Our single-minded following of Christ will not only be misinterpreted as hatred by those close to us, it will be seen as self-hatred. Has she got no ambition? Has he got no sense? Has she got no concern for her reputation? Giving up a potential career with all its earning power? Spending all that time volunteering, holding unpopular, politically incorrect views, risking ostracism, being ridiculed? Why are they doing it? It'll be asked. Unless a person hates even his own life and reputation, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's not neurotic indulgence in low self esteem, that's equally unhealthy as self obsession. As Keller says, it's not about thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking of yourself less. And to some that will appear as self-hatred. That brings us to the other requirement. Hate your family, prepare to die. It's a short step from hating oneself to taking up your cross. If someone was carrying a cross in Roman-occupied Palestine, there was a fair chance they were going to end up on it. It was part of the preparation for death. Jesus here, as he walks towards Jerusalem and the inevitability of Calvary, is saying to his followers, come with me and prepare to die. And that's why the early Christians were able to face death calmly. It was part of the package. I always think of your former minister, Graham Connor, telling me about some of his experiences and the parts of the world where he was living at the time, where people came to him and Graham had to say to him, say to them, you know what this might mean for you if you commit your life to Christ. And they were able to say, we know. We recognize this could mean death. But we want to know more about a message so powerful that it might actually be worth getting killed for. That's why when another Christian was told, it may be dangerous to go to that area as a preacher, I heard him say, it's okay. I died the moment I gave my life to Christ. I gave up any rights I had to my own life. Folks, that's the radical message we try to share with students. 
so that from an early age they know what's at stake. That's what Christ is saying here. For us, it may not mean as obvious or radical a sacrifice, but it has to mean something. So let me just highlight two simple examples of what it might mean for us. First of all, our stuff. Some of you may know that my wife Gwen is a professional declutterer. Stop nudging your spies. I can see it. One thing she is often surprised about when she's with a Christian client, or more often when she's speaking at a Christian group about her, the issues around clutter, she's often surprised about still how tightly we hang on to things that are ultimately inconsequential. Folks, crosses are pretty heavy and bulky. You need two hands to carry them. You can't carry your cross if your hands are full of other things. One other example, our hurts and our pain. I say this because I think that if there's something I find a lot of people want to hang on to or find hard to let go of, it's our resentment. Hurts or pain caused to us. It's maybe why the Greek word for forgiveness, aphiemi, can also be translated letting go. Taking up our cross will mean acknowledging that we're going to be hurt. Being a faithful follower of Jesus is going to increase the chances of that. I remember many years ago when the peace negotiations here in Northern Ireland were at a delicate stage going to a political hustings with some politicians and church leaders. And towards the end of the event, someone stood up and made a very emotional and impassioned speech. They were a Christian, but they felt that their community, if not they themselves, had suffered too much. And they kept asking as they made this speech, how can I forget about this and about this? And they named various atrocities. How can you expect me to let go? How can you expect me to forgive? How can you expect me to go on, when, move on, when all of that has happened? And I was sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder how this will be answered. And one church leader listened, and after a short silence, he said very gently, I know, it's not easy, but it's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. That's all he said. It's not easy, which is why Jesus gives us those illustrations, you know, where the point is very clear. You don't start on a venture without counting the cost, otherwise you're left with a folly, an empty shell of a building, or a defeated, demoralized army. So we've got a problem. Christ demands absolute loyalty to the extent that others may interpret it as hatred. He demands that we essentially die, take up our cross, let go of our stuff, our hurt, our pain, a lot of other things. But who can do that? He tells us to count the cost, and we're doing that, and it's pretty high, and it's way more than as in our spiritual or emotional bank accounts, way beyond whatever resources we feel we have. Of course, some people have thought they could do it. They've realized they can't. They've given up. They've tried the old idols again, and that's why one of the excuses I sometimes hear from students, particularly those who have grown up in the church, as to why they don't commit to Christ was, I tried it, and it didn't work. Their tower was never completed. Their army was defeated. Folks, the reality is that if we were to count up the cost in terms of our personal resources, our natural abilities, our intellectual gifts, our resilience, our compassion, our desire to do good and love God, if we count all of that up and keep adding it, 
we'll be lucky if the tower gets two feet off the ground. None of us can do it. But the gospel is that as we count the cost and as we weigh that up against what we have, we need to claim daily the all-sufficient resources promised to us by Christ. We need to drink deeply of His Spirit. We need to rest on His grace. We need to depend on Him alone. What makes us so confident that that will make any difference? Well, because He was there. Unless you hate your mother and father, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. They said to him, your mother and brothers are outside. And he answered, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, that's a bit dismissive. Some people thought, oh, he must really hate his family to say that. And yet watch him on the cross having time to speak to John and organize care for his mother. And you know that couldn't be further from the truth. He put all relationships, even family relationships, in perspective beside the most important relationship of all with his Father. He says, whoever does not carry their cross, they are not worthy. But he did it, didn't he? He carried it. And he hung on it so that we might be able to love like we have never loved before. Love so much and in a way that is so different to what the world around us thinks of as love that they won't understand it. So how do you get there? What hope can I give you this evening? Because the worst thing that could happen today is that I leave you feeling so far from this picture of discipleship and so far from meeting the cost that you don't bother trying. There was an old Scottish theologian called Thomas Chalmers. He was a leading light in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. And he wrote a famous essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They were into snappy titles in those days. But the message of the essay was very straightforward. It was this. There's no point in trying to get somebody to stop loving or give up something to which they're very attached, but which may be unhelpful, whether it's an addictive behavioral pattern or an unhealthy or destructive relationship. There's no point in trying to get them to give that up unless first you're going to give them something more beautiful and more attractive and more compelling in its place. Once they grasp this new affection, the old stuff will disappear. I saw this as a teenager. A friend would regularly be into whatever her boyfriend was into. When the football-loving guy was dumped to be replaced by the petrol head, she stopped being into football and was suddenly into cars. A new affection had expelled the old one. And Chalmer's point is that it is utterly counterproductive and futile to preach law at people telling them to give up their idle sins, as they say in Dublin, if first you have not introduced them to grace and shown them the beauty of Christ. That's where we start, by demonstrating the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Because if we don't, if I don't do that with the students, if you don't do that with your young people here in Bloomfield or the people you're witnessing to at work, then what do we have? We'll just end up with religious people doing religious things to try to make it over the finishing line. All duty, no love, no affection, no grace. Salt that has lost its very reason for existence. Useless for the dinner plate or the farmyard, as Jesus says. And yet I wonder if that's what much of contemporary Christianity can be seen as. A bunker of flavorless, ineffective, essentially useless salt. 
Folks, Jesus is not just someone worth following. He's someone worth risking everything else for. This is someone worth dying for. What will it take for you to fall in love with him or fall back in love with him again today? Just a couple of months ago, Tim Farron, in his resignation speech as leader of the Lib Dems, and after a pretty relentless and inexcusable personal campaign by sections of the media against him for his Christian beliefs, he said this on national television. As he closed his speech, he said, I joined our party when I was 16. It's in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I was to lead this party. And then imagine what it would take to make me voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my life, my all. Now, there is salt that still has its flavor. There is someone who has chosen in some people's eyes to hate his party, his friends, his career, his very life because of the expulsive power of another affection. Are you ready to count the cost? You see, there's one final twist to the story I told at the start about the Hedge Boys. For those of you who've been wondering, the final score was fully kitted, tactically trained, full squad, Moody College 2. Ramshackle DM wearing ten and a half players, Hedge Boys 5. Because you see, while the visible resources were all on one side, there was a final factor we needed to bear in mind. Basic, raw, innate footballing ability. And in those days anyway, a bunch of Dublin teens still had it over a group of American frat boys. So when we're counting the cost, it'll be so tempting to say, look at us, we can't do it. The question is, do you want to? Has love for Christ and what he has done for you gripped you so that you so want to follow him more faithfully? Then don't look at the visible. Think of the spiritual resources that are available to us in Christ. Folks, he is all he's cracked up to be and more. Realize he's worth it. Take up the cross and follow. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the